Delaware County's premier podcast with your hosts, Dennis and Michelle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in the Bear Cave. I'm Dennis Zerl, and this week we are sponsored by Abode Real Estate, your professional real estate advisors in Colorado Springs and Teller County, the historic Butte Theater in Cripple Creek, bringing you the best melodrama productions in the United States, In the Shadow Designs, the place where your custom creations are made for all occasions, and Peak Washing LLC, the pressure washing professionals for that dirty job. Well, I don't know about you, but I had a pretty great weekend, and uh, I went to a car show at Brazenhead where I met some really cool people last weekend. It was uh, last Saturday, and saw some really cool cars, trucks, and hot rods. I took our 66 Caddy Coupe DeVille there. That was a a fun time, and uh, you know, it's just too bad the Cruise Above the Clouds was canceled this year, but uh, I hear the show will be reorganizing and coming back better than ever next year, so... Hopefully, we'll be able to uh, all meet there for that Saturday and those activities as well. But thanks to the folks at Brazenhead for throwing that party. Gearheads up here are always looking to meet up with other people and uh, have a good time. And uh, it was just kind of a nice scene all the way around. I'm thinking there were probably close to 40 cars, if not more, that showed up. Thanks again for opening up that property. And I think everybody had a good time. Well, on Sunday, I took a cruise to Fairplay and visited South Park City and that museum there. And I got to tell you, if you've never been up there, that is really something to see. That was a, it was pretty great. It's a cool little town, but the drive back, yowza, that's all I can say. I kind of knew that was going to happen because that's usually the case on Sundays after all, because uh, all the tourists are going back to their respective cities. But nonetheless, any day out in the Colorado sunshine when you're exploring some of our smaller towns is an awesome day. So eh, I can't complain about that. Well, I guess I could, but it wouldn't do me any good. Well, today we have another good lineup for you. We have Carol Harvey coming into our studio as our guest today. And if you've lived in Woodland Park for any amount of time, you'll recognize that name. And I think she is going to shed some more light on that whole Karis PUD issue one last time before I put that back in the closet where it belongs. Next week, we have Woodland Park Chief of Police Chris Deisler coming into the Bear Cave. Really excited to have him come to studio and talk about the good things that are happening in his department. And we'll talk a little bit about his philosophy about police work in general. We certainly understand that he's a very busy guy, and if uh, he can't make it in, then we'll reschedule him. We're just going to kind of take this one day at a time, but uh, hopefully he'll make it in and uh, really looking forward to that discussion as well. As mentioned last week, the first week of October, we have author, editor, and cannabis activist Christina Etter coming into the Bear Cave. We're going to talk to her about her view on the whole cannabis industry and her view about the upcoming issue in regards to the vote in Cripple Creek, whether the residents are going to vote for a recreational cannabis dispensary or not. As everyone knows, that's on the ballot this November, so that should be an interesting conversation as well. And also in October, it's time for the Mayor's Corner. She'll be coming on in the third week of October. We'll be looking forward to seeing how Mayor Hillary Labar is doing and checking in with her about the latest and greatest issues that affect Woodland Park. So fast forward as usual, no slowing down here. Well, you either have to be living under a rock or just not have TV or just not watch the news or any kind of events whatsoever to know that the biggest story that came out this past week was about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flying those migrants all the way up to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Now, if you're a governor who may or may not run for, I don't know, president on the Republican ticket, you may want to make national news to uh, get your campaign started. Well, this is absolutely one way to do it. 
Now, allegedly, the migrants were homeless and given multiple opportunities to volunteer to take the trip or to stay behind. And that was according to DeSantis's administration. So there were two planes that were sent to Massachusetts last week to that island. And that sparked a major backlash from the Democrats. Really? Well, I wonder why. According to DeSantis's administration, these migrants were allegedly wandering around the border. They were homeless. They were hungry. They're sleeping outside. They're sleeping in parking lots. And according to officials, whoever they are, many had been kicked out of shelters and did not have a place to go. So the DeSantis administration said the migrants were informed of their destination and they were given multiple opportunities to decline the trip. They were offered hotels. They were offered meals and showers, haircuts a couple of days before the trip. And some did indeed decline to go on that trip. But here's the best part. During the flights, the individuals were given bags of snacks, water, and other provisions. And there was information given to them about the Massachusetts website that talks about the benefits that there are available to them in sanctuary states. So as predicted in reply, Governor Deputy Dew, good old Gavin Newsom from California, he sent a letter asking the Attorney General Merrick Garland, you know, we talked about that little guy, to investigate whether DeSantis could be charged with kidnapping. <laughs> really? <laughs> kidnapping. This is despite launching a program that Newsom did himself from San Francisco when he was the mayor when he bust thousands of homeless people out of San Francisco and the state. And this is a guy who said that he's going to run for president if Sniffy doesn't. Good old Gavin. And of course, he wasn't the only one. The Democrats and the liberal left were just appalled that they could fly these migrants and use them as hostages and yeah, whatever the story was. And these are the same bleeding hearts that were saying, you know, we welcome all these people into our countries, into our city, into our state until it's time for the migrants to show up on your doorstep. Well, I wonder if they spent any time at any of the border cities or towns down in uh, the border. I know Obama hasn't, even though she says the border's secure. That's a joke. But, uh, you know, one thing I'd love to see, if the Donald doesn't run, for example, and I think it's almost a foregone conclusion that Sniffy's not going to be back on that ticket, I would love to see a debate between DeSantis, if he does run, and Newsom on a stage somewhere. And you think the Donald was in your face? Oh, my gosh. Wait until DeSantis takes over or if he gets on the stage or if he's even lucky to do so. I mean, right now, these guys are already trolling each other. And, uh, man, that is one show that I don't want to miss. The thing that just gets me is all this phony outrage from sanctuary states. I mean, it's laughable as they themselves are doing the same thing. Just last week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago, you know, she's the one that looks like Beetlejuice. She is now bussing immigrants and illegals out of the city of Chicago to, I don't know, parts unknown. Who knows? So the hypocrisy is undeniable. I mean, it's okay for border towns and cities to be literally overrun, but not your phony sanctuary cities and your phony sanctuary states. We talked about this last week, too. Just in one weekend, 2,000 migrants illegally crossed over into Texas because there was a hole in that wall that the Donald was building. So that's just one example. And that's not coming from us. This is coming from the Border Patrol. You can look it up. It's, it's right there. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't like DeSantis flew thousands of people there. The total count of immigrants who landed in Martha's Vineyards last week was somewhere around 50 people. 
There are thousands crossing over the border illegally every week. So, so I'm sure you sanctuary people will be denying that at every turn, just like you are right now, because everybody knows the border is secure. Good Lord. Now, my next story, I'm not really a uh, CBS 60 Minutes kind of guy or really any kind of news media outlet type of person. But when I heard that old Sniffy was going to be on 60 Minutes, I thought, it can't be any worse than Obama being on Meet the Press, could it? Well, guess what? Sniffy Joe did a rare interview with 60 Minutes, and it was a bunch of softball questions, but uh, very telling as well. And the interview was conducted by uh, Scott Pelley. Now, Scott Pelley's questions are, you know, they're, they're definitely softballs that get thrown. In fact, they're not even that much. It's more like playing t-ball because Scott Pelley will not ask any tough questions. He won't do any kind of follow-up questions. And basically, he was just knob slobbering all over Sniffy Joe. Well, when he asked Sniffy if he was going to run again, and he asked this multiple times, the answer was, from Sniffy, remains to be seen. Well, in my mind, that's a big fat no, and he'll probably bail and let someone younger take over, like uh, we talked about before. Good old Dippity Doo Newsome is standing in the wings. You know, he said as much. The second issue that he talked about was Sniffy announced that the United States would defend Taiwan against attack from China. So let me get this right, Sniffy. And these are your words. You're going to put men and women and the American armed forces on the ground to defend this island. And yeah, that could really work out well when uh, China can land and occupy that whole place in a matter of hours, if not sooner. So right after he made that announcement, the State Department came back after the interview and allegedly said that, no, we're going to do what uh, we're supposed to do according to the agreement in the defense of Taiwan. The third point that I thought was interesting is that Sniffy announced that COVID-19 is over. Well, after he made that statement, that set the left states into a frothy panic as some are still using the emergency powers to control their sheeple, California being one of them. But it was really both sides that kind of turned on Sniffy on that one. And some, of course, because they didn't want to give up their mask. I'm still seeing people driving around in their vehicles by themselves with a mask on. Dr. Fakey and all those people from the CDC just planted the seed of stupidity in your head by saying that, you know, we're still under attack from COVID. And if it's not COVID, it's going to be monkeypox. And if it's not monkeypox, it's going to be something else. Come on, people. It's been two years. Two years. And you heard it from the commander-in-chief himself, he said that COVID is over. Oh, uh, another thing, that uh, $60 billion that's going to be a trillion dollars for forgiveness of your college tuition he signed? I think that someone actually forgot to read the HEROES Act. Remember, the HEROES Act was done somewhere in, I think it was 2002 or 2003, and it was done for the military after 9-11 because we were at war and it was a national emergency. So the national emergency, that was the grounds for the student loan forgiveness. Well, guess what, Sniffy? You just declared the pandemic over, so there is no national emergency. So in this case, the HEROES Act does not apply. And he pretty much said as much that uh, it could be a little illegal because we didn't have any kind of congressional approval on it. So don't go buying that new car just yet. But I'm guessing he's going to change his mind about that one at a statement later on. I mean, maybe tomorrow. Who, who the hell knows? Oh, and during that whole interview, guess what? There were no border questions even asked. Well, uh, I guess that's not such a bad idea. At least they cut us a little slack on that one. Last time Obama was trying to talk about the border was painful. 
But the interview in general was about what you expected. Sneffy was sounding a little tired and feeble for most of the interview. Just didn't seem like there's a lot of energy left in that guy. He kind of reminds me of a deflated tire, I guess. He's actually still blaming COVID for inflation. Uh, that's this week. Last week, he was blaming the Donald. So either he's lying or he just can't remember his own BS. Oh, wait a minute. I think that's called dementia. I think next time 60 Minutes should consider a kindergartner to conduct an interview instead of Scott Pelley. You know, maybe some really hard-hitting questions with some follow-up questions. But then again, I just don't think that's in Mr. T-Ball's repertoire. Well, one last story that I saw came right here from Colorado, and that is the story about the basic income experiment, which is finally going to happen in Denver. It is called the Basic Income Project. So using the excuse of the American Rescue Act, the city of Denver chose more than 140 homeless in Denver who will each receive up to $1,000 in cash a month for up to a year as part of the basic income program. And this is designed to help lift individuals out of homelessness. Well, that $2 million contract with the Denver Basic Income Project, it was approved by the city council. And they're going to provide cash assistance to, get this, women, transgender, and gender non-conforming individuals and families in shelters. All right, well, why aren't homeless men included in this program? Can anybody answer that question? I mean, just about anybody who's been down to Cherry Creek area knows that the large number of homeless in Denver, they fit into the category of alcoholic, drug addict, or they're suffering from some kind of mental illness, among other things, and now you're going to give them $1,000 in order to move into stable housing, according to Mayor Michael Hancock, who said it's just as important to have housing and shelter, and we're providing them a regular source of income for those experiencing homelessness. Well, that's going to make a lot of crack dealers happy along with your favorite liquor store, and only if you fit into that criteria can you get that money. And here's another one. Guess what? There are no requirements at all for those chosen to perform any kind of service whatsoever. So you don't have to find a job. You don't have to go to any kind of counseling, any kind of alcohol or drug rehab, none of that kind of stuff. Nothing. It's all free. And if it's successful by any stretch of the imagination, there is another $7 million to throw out the window to help another 820 people. The idea is to eventually free up more shelters to find space for those who are unhoused. That's the new thing. I call it homeless, but uh, whatever. Just another fancy term. So that's $9 million that could feed a lot of people. If you had $9 million and you went on the street and fed people, that dollar would go a whole lot further than tossing out $1,000 to 140 people and going, hey, you know, this is going to help you get back on your feet. So they're just leaving it up to those 140 people without accounting for any of the cash or where it's going to. That fits into the really horrible idea category. Well, all I can say is good luck with that one, Denver, but whatever. Well, when we come back into the Bear Cave, we'll be talking to Carol Harvey, so stick around. You know, moving can be stressful. I know. I've moved 13 times in 20 years and I've lived in four different states. When it finally came time to move back to Colorado, Woodland Park and Teller County were our target locations. But before I moved back home, I was looking for a real estate broker who understood and had experience with military families and knew the area well. 
I found Abode Real Estate and Joshua Dorsey. I called Josh right away and it only took 35 days to not only find our forever home, but to close and move into it. Josh understood exactly what we were looking for because he's a common sense person and knows a good deal from a bad one. He'll make every effort to make sure you get the home that you absolutely want and love. As your real estate advisor, Josh will focus on client satisfaction. His business is about service and he's not happy until you're happy. Whether it's finding you a home, finding the best loan, or helping you get the most out of selling your home, Josh is there to guide you. So if you're considering a real estate professional, give Josh a call today at 719-433-4773 or email him at joshua at csabode.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A at C-S-A-B-O-D-E dot com. I'm confident that you will be completely satisfied. Back into the Bear Cave, I'm Dennis Zarrell, and my guest this week is a, I guess, longtime Woodland Park resident, no stranger to the Bear Cave podcast. Welcome, Carol Harvey. Carol, welcome to the Bear Cave. Thank you, Dennis. We've been kind of uh, dancing around each other through email for a while now, and uh, just so happens that we didn't have a guest for this week because the chief had to you know, do his Woodland Park PD kind of thing. It was just so fortuitous that you sent an email and I thought, ah, oh, that's it. Let's uh, let's talk to Carol. But uh, anyway, uh, we're kind of getting to know each other as well. And uh, kind of give me your background a little bit, if, if you will. You've been in Woodland Park for, you said, somewhere around 18 years, right? Close to 18 now. Mm-hmm. How'd you wind up in Woodland Park? Two duty assignments, one on, I was on active duty, even though I was in the army, I was stationed at Peterson Air Force Base twice over my career. Uh, My husband and I built a house down in the Springs in 95, rented it out. And when I retired out of uh, Europe, I, we decided to come back to that house and realized that wasn't Colorado down there. So, but we decided Woodland Park was really where we wanted to live. It was more Colorado, more so than a, a housing development in Briargate in Colorado Springs. So we sold that house uh, down there very quickly. And uh, there was a spec house up here at the height of the building boom. And we were able to get in at, literally at ground floor and customize it to our desires and moved up here. Um, and I'd, I'd just retired from the army at that point. I was talking to a neighbor that I didn't know I had across the street. We were at a Brazen Head car show last weekend. So we started talking. He says, yeah, I, I, uh, I bought my property here before there was any roads. And just, it's hard to kind of imagine, you know, when you, when you think about this area, I've only been here a little over two years and it's grown already. It's, it's crazy. It, it has. Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, 24 is a, a major thoroughfare for commerce for the state of Colorado. And I, I'm, I'm hoping eventually the state realizes that they've got to pay attention to that and possibly work on, on a bypass in the near term future, not 30 years from now when you and I are gone. But yeah, the first time we came up here to Woodland Park was to visit some friends that I worked with at Peterson Air Force Base that lived there. I thought it was the edge of the world. There were no paved streets. Um, Right. Everyone picked up their mail at the, the post office that's down there by uh, City Hall. And I always thought that was 
a, a really great feature of a small town because you're yeah. forced to meet your neighbors. Absolutely. But uh, while we were overseas, roads got paved and more residential building had occurred. And uh, we just thought with a view of Pikes Peak every morning, this was the place to be. The view that we got here. Not right. the that we got down on the front range. Well, you move up here and then were you still working in the Springs at the time? What did you do after you retired? I retired from the military in uh, 2002, somewhere in there. I got held back a little bit because of uh, what was going on in the world at the time. And uh, even though I'd, I was already on what you used to call terminal leave, I got recalled back to Fort Carson and basically sat down there waiting to do something or go somewhere. And, and the Army in its wisdom said, you know what, we already paid for a PCS move this fiscal year. So we're going to let you go. Yeah. Not so fast lady. <laughs> so they let me go. But at that time we were still living in the Springs and I had already begun working as a consultant for a defense contractor. And uh, I did that until about 2009. And then in 2009, I went to work for the federal government at U.S. Northern Command in NORAD. I left that job at about right before COVID kicked off. What did you do in the army? I was an intelligence officer. Aha, uh-huh, one of those kind of people. Okay, I won't be too hard on you. Thanks. Well, you know I got lost coming up here, so it says something about my military skill sets. Well, I mean, you don't have to you know, do a whole lot of land navigation kind of thing, so it's it's okay. <laughs> when did you start getting involved with, uh, I guess, political issues in Woodland Park? What kind of motivated you to get involved with that? Well, and my undergraduate degree is in political science and, and really with an emphasis on local government. So that's always been an interest for me from, from age 18 forward. And we had lived here about two and a half, three years, and uh, I was following some of the issues with uh, the planning commission at the time, and that was about the time that Walmart was going to come to town. And that was a big deal from what I understand. Oh my goodness, yeah. I I have to say, I sat back and watched it. I listened to my neighbors complain about how Walmart would bring a certain kind of people here that we didn't want in Woodland Park. (laughs) These are people that that were shopping at Sam's in Colorado Springs, but no, they they didn't want a Walmart up here, even though the location was next to probably the most unattractive mobile home park in the state of Colorado. It was, you know, Walmart itself would bring even a worse kind of clientele. Can you imagine that? It's like, hey, we're going to build a Walmart and bring some class in here. Yeah, well, how how they, does that work? Uh, well, they, that was their argument. Um, and it, as it turned out, there there was an outside element that had come to town with petitions going door to door, trying to convince uh, residents here that they didn't want a Walmart. And when it was discovered that that was an, an out of town, if not out of state uh, effort that kind of turned folks off. And I said, you know, this is really interesting. I want to see how this works from the planning commission's uh, view of the, the world or view of the community. So I applied to be appointed and uh, was appointed. And I think that was probably uh, probably around 2008. And I was on the planning commission until th- 2012. And my final position on the planning commission was as the chairperson, or I say chairman, I wore men's clothing for most of my adult life, so I have no problem with someone calling me councilman or chairman. That's just the way it is. Yeah, go figure, yeah, right? That, that, I don't have that sensitivity. So when I was the chairman of the, the planning commission, I decided to run for city council, and that was in 2012, April of 2012. And I had two terms on the city council. So no aspirations to become the mayor or anything like that? I did serve as a mayor pro tem for a, um, part of my tenure on the city council. Um, and 
was rudely placed in the position of acting mayor when the then mayor had to resign or chose to resign. That sounds kind of familiar around here. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, and, and that individual still lives in a community and, and frankly, it, it is still interested in the best of the, for the community, but uh, threw me into the position of uh, mayor for a short time and then we appointed a new mayor. That was an interesting period of time. I don't know if you've gone back and study the history of how Neil Levy came into the position of mayor. Only through rumor control and Mountain Inquirer. The more I'm here, the more bits and pieces I get. And I kind of have to just kind of st- take a step back and digest it all and cut between the BS and see what's real and what is it. You know, it's kind of. It, it was surprising. Uh, you know, I, I, the charter at the time directed that if there is a, a vacancy in the mayor's position, that uh, an individual will be appointed within 60 days of the vacancy. So we were up against a time limit, which no longer exists, which is uh, another story of time on city council and charter amendments. But I think there were five people who threw their, their names in for consideration. And it was, we were up against the very last day, the 59th day of that time limit. And uh, five great candidates, they all spoke in front of the um, council individually. And the charter at the time did not permit the option to go to a special election. And if something's not permitted, then it is prohibited. At least that was the city attorney's opinion. So here we are on the, the very last day, literally the 11th hour with five applicants. And Neil Levy was one and an, an individual named Phil uh, Mella, who, another great guy who's who's moved from the community, but still participates. You probably read his um, editorials and guest columns in the Courier. And we were tied. Six people left on the, the dais, so we were tied between the two individuals. State law and the city charter allows for a game of chance to select an individual if there's a tie. And we had a great city clerk then. We have a great city clerk now, but Cindy Morse uh, went into the break room and brought out the popcorn bowl that everyone used, you know, on their breaks in the break room at City Hall, put the names of the two in a, in a bowl, and the city attorney reached in, pulled out Neil Levy's name. And so Neil became the mayor. Neil was a great mayor. Phil would have been a great mayor, but Neil uh, went on to two elections to be reelected. It's so funny because uh, I talked to uh, Stephanie Keys. She's going to be the new clerk and recorder for Teller County. And she told me a story. Of, it's so mining Western towns. Like, okay, we're going to cut some cards to see who becomes the mayor. I was like, okay, you're kidding, right? She's like, no, this is how we did it. <laughs> so, well, we, we cut cards to uh, elect. Uh, we had a, a, a council election two years later, and there was a, a dead tie between John Schaefer and Noel Sawyer. Votes were recounted, and it still came out to a dead tie. Just It was just uh, unfathomable. But in that case, we cut a deck of cards, and, and Noel became the council member. No duels in the middle of the street or anything like that. So. If that was considered a game of chance, I, I think you could do it. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> so, roulette wheel kind of thing. Hillary Labar says that you were mentoring her for a while when she first got on the council. Hillary's been a, a great mayor so far. Um, again, there's you think everything is is mundane and by the book, and you're going to hear a case as the council or as the planning commission, and then something will come out of the clear blue that you realize this is not what Carol Harvey told me the council was going to be like. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Her demeanor though is is well suited to the position. She's done very well. I think the current city council they've kind of reeled it all back in again. So there's not so much uh, craziness, 
I guess, for lack of better terms, that was going on before. But uh, yeah, she comes on. I'm, like I say, we she has her segment that comes on uh, sometime in October. She's coming in, actually. Okay. But uh, yeah. I was kind of hard on that city council when I first got up here and we started doing the podcast because it was all just so bizarre to me. Nothing was getting done. And since the elections, it's night and day. It is. Um, and surprising how an individual personality can impact the dynamics of a group. A group of people who only want the best for the community. I, I don't think I, I rarely saw anyone who came in with a single issue agenda. When I left council and the next election that occurred, there were a couple of individuals that came on with very much single issue agendas. And one of them was an individual named Jim Paff. And, uh, oh yeah, that guy. That guy. Yeah. I never understood his agenda. Uh, I, you know, I, through the rumor mill here, you know, he was brought in by this group or that group. I, I don't know. I think it was just, he was an individual who wanted to have check the block that he'd been an elected official and then run for some other office somewhere else, whether here or Indiana or wherever, wherever he went back to. I always said that you can't trust a guy wearing a cowboy hat and hush puppies. You got it. You got it. Yeah. I, I don't know why that seems to be a requirement to run for mayor or council in this town. I don't, I don't have a Stetson and I don't have a beard. So yeah. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> At least that anyone has ever seen. Uh, yeah, but Jim Paff, I think, was part of the problem with that particular council. He he had no regard for the welfare of the community. It was all about Jim Paff. And so I was a, an active member of the recall committee for, for Jim Paff. And I have no problem with him resigning before that recall occurred. And it, and it would have. Yeah, because then he could never run for any kind of political office again if he gets that recall. Well, I guess he could run for political office, but it was certainly been a liability to know that you were recalled in a town of 8,000 people. Yeah, go figure, right? Well, that brings me up to kind of the, the big subject that's been happening around here lately. And that is when Karis Bible College started in its infancy, you were kind of, well, you were around when that all started happening. Relay that story to me. And then hopefully after today, I can put that whole thing to bed because it's all very convoluted to me. And I've, I've heard stories about the PUD and all this kind of stuff and how that all came about. So kind of take me back and, and take you back in time. Yeah. Put me back in that way back machine there. Uh, the way back machine. I wasn't there way back. I was still on, you know, still a, just a citizen at large, but the city of uh, Woodland Park annexed in a, a parcel of about 200 acres uh, from the county into the city limits. And it was, uh, the applicant was Karis Bible College. Actually, at that time, the applicant may have been Womack Ministries, but to annex them into the city. And I, I sitting back, I'm going, I'm not real sure why they needed to do that. And then I, I later understood after serving on planning commission and city council that that was primarily for access to water and, and, and uh, water waste management. Um, again, it, it was like, okay, Bible college. So what? Once they were annexed into the city, then, of course, they have to go through a, a number of steps to get that particular plat of land approved for whatever the use is that they intended. And they intended to have a college, not a church, but a college and right. the ministry headquarters. That was closer to 2010, 2011, when those actions were being considered by the planning department in Woodland Park. And I was on the planning commission at that point in time. So I didn't deal with the annexation issue, but I certainly did participate in the consideration made by the planning commission. And one of the things that happened during that period of time, I, I have, I've yet to go back to that piece of property. I've never been invited, don't have a reason to go there and don't really care. Yeah, me neither. I, <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah. But at the time, um, the individual who was 
called the operations manager for Karis Bible College, Larry Bozeman, who was a, a very nice and considerate, articulate man. Just, you know, having grown up in the South, I was used to that kind of personality from a religious organization. He took the planning commission out to look at the piece of property and showed us, you know, here's where we're going to put the barn, or this is where we're going to have student housing, blah, blah, blah. And even at that time, the more experienced members of the planning commission were going, okay, this is great. Have a college out here. We don't care, but what's your fire mitigation plan? What's your emergency ingress and egress plan? Those questions were already formulating. Really not a lot of uh, consideration by the planning commission that time about taxing uh, any portion of the property. Just, you know, let's think about some of the practical issues and challenges you're going to have if you, in fact, bring this many people into this size town onto this size of real estate. And the numbers were probably much smaller than they are now, I would imagine. Well, they were. There was a a college in Colorado Springs. I think it was down off of Garden of the Gods. I don't recall specifically the location. And that a much smaller number of students. And even then, Mr. Bozeman, Larry, had said, you know, this is our build-out plan. This is how many students we hope to have at this campus. And those were the things, those were the cause, the whistles that went off for all of us going, okay, if you've got that many more people in a town this size, what are the infrastructure requirements? So it never had to do with, oh, you're a bunch of Bible thumpers and we don't want you in our town. It had to do with, right. this is an entity. They were a corporation. How is that in- corporation going to impact the infrastructure of Woodland Park? and Teller County for that matter. See, that's always the shell game, isn't it? Because you become a corporation and then, you know, the the, the more I dug into this whole thing, the 501c3s and c4s, there's so many loopholes in that thing that you can just about call yourself anything you want and be, you know, not have to pay any kind of taxes. Yeah, I, I've been on, on a board of a 501c3 and I help write their bylaws and, and get their approval. But, you know, I don't think anyone ever worried about that as much as the practical existence of that many more people in this community. How, how would we handle it and how could we help them handle it? So Mr. Bozeman brought the, the original planned unit development application to the planning commission. And it was about the time I decided to resign from the planning commission in order to run for city council. And by the way, I ran unopposed and three open positions and three people got elected. And so it was not, the second time there was a comp, there was competition, but the first time, nah, nothing, well, not so, so much. So you won by a landslide, you, nothing wrong with bingo. that. Actually, I did get, I think, 10 more votes than the other two candidates, but it didn't matter. We were, <laughs> we were all in a post and I'm not sure who those 10 people were that wouldn't have voted for the other two. But um, anyway, it came to the planning uh, commission and the planning commission had some folks that had been in this community for a long time and had dealt with these kind of issues before. And again, it was never anti-ministry. It was, how are we going to accommodate this many people? So in the PUD, the planned unit development, there were several conditions, which often happens, and all of them had to do with, okay, you're going to pay fees for water. I mean, they they never tried to get out of paying for water. They just weren't going to pay property tax, which in many Many instances, that shouldn't have even been a consideration for the planning commission, but there were some far-thinking people who said, well, we got to look at this because any PUD application that comes forward to the planning commission has been reviewed by all of the taxing districts. And the only taxing district in 2011 uh, that said, we've got an issue here was Northeast Teller County Fire District. And again, they could have cared less. And I've said this before, and it's a little um, flippant, but they didn't care if there was a coven of witches over there. 
if they were going to have that many people on that large of a piece of property, they needed needed to contribute to the emergency services of the community. And the fire department had laid out a very good argument of why they needed to either get compensated or find some other solution to pay for the fire ambulance, whatever. And they suggested, they being the the chief of of NETCO, uh, uh, Tyler Lambert, that they do a payment in lieu of taxes. That seemed to be so objectionable to Womack Ministries and and Karis Bible College. If you even mentioned payment in lieu of taxes, it was like, no, we don't want to even talk about that. Well, taxes in general, they they turn and run. But Mr. Bozeman came up with a very elegant, eloquent way to approach it. He said, look, we'll privatize the housing. That's going to be where the majority of the wall Water is going to be used. And if there is a call for NETCO to respond to an emergency, it's probably going to be at that facility or those facilities, student lodging. And so that was at Mr. Bozeman's suggestion and was added to the conditions that the Planning Commission uh, approved in early 2012. And then in 2012 is when the final PUD came to the city council. By that time, I was on city council. And that evening, we approved the PUD with all of those conditions to include setting aside the student housing project as a private entity or private enterprise that could be taxed. Did anybody at all think about this was any twigs snapping on the ambush, so to speak? Because when you think about a 501c3 and and you know the churches aren't paying taxes and things like that, this has been my question question all along is like, how did nobody really have a foresight or forethought to think that maybe this isn't the best deal or it's unenforceable? The question did come up in the discussions at that particular public hearing. And our city attorney at the time, her name is Erin Smith, and she still serves as a city attorney in Cripple Creek. She said, you know, this is a condition that the applicant brought forward. This was not something that the city asked them to do. This was the applicant's request. And she said, as long as it's their request, it is enforceable. Well, of course, we now know that they cried foul in the last uh, few months and said, no, it was always illegal and you forced us to do it. I mean, you're talking about negotiating in good faith with someone who's, and they always say it, we want to be a good neighbor. And then only to find out that later on you're hiding between this First Amendment battle, according to them, which is actually a contractual one as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I I don't believe it was ever a First Amendment battle. I remember just a few months ago when the, uh, now I'm on the planning commission again, I got it and I decided, you know, just a glutton for punishment and has to be appointed. (laughs) to the planning commission again, Um, when they brought their request to modify that PUD forward to the planning commission, um, it was like, you did this in good faith. Why why are you crying uncle now? And it it may have been all along that they knew it was not enforceable, but... I think they knew it from the get-go. It came up again in the the discussion within Woodland Park and also within Colorado Springs, because there's, you know, quite a few large mega churches in Colorado Springs that have, have, have dealt with these issues as well. And it came up the Indy. I don't know if you're a, a reader of the Colorado Springs Indy uh, publication. No, no. Um, it's it's an interesting, very left leaning publication. I think they they thought they had a story with the whole build up in the small community of a, an institution that wasn't accredited but claimed to be a college, and then they also knew about the PUD approval. And that's one of the reasons that I contacted you this week is there was an uh, an article in the Gazette this week that ended up in the Courier two weeks ago actually that an individual, a representative of of Karis, inferred no. He didn't infer. He flat flat out accused 
a previous mayor of adding this condition after the fact. The PUD process is governed by state law. There's no way that condition was added after the fact. All of the minutes from all of the meetings indicate it was part of the planning commission and the council deliberation. So it didn't happen after the fact. See, this is all information that's coming out now that I hadn't heard before, that nobody had heard before. And I don't know if there are people that were, you know, maybe trying to silence you from having this information come out before all this is going on. No, they didn't try to silence me. I mean, I, br- I brought it back up in the, the planning commission meeting. I, I said, I, I'm sorry, we've got the minutes right in front of us. And I was there. An attorney from Karis just looked at me like, well, I, I don't really believe what you're saying. Yeah, you know, he just, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. My, my face is, is, is red, not because of my blood pressure, but is <laughs> well, my blood pressure is going up when I when I recount it. My anger boiling yeah, over. Yeah, to have someone you know basically accuse me of lying about something that was was you know kept on record, officially approved minutes that stated that condition came from the planning commission to the city council in 2012, and in fact, the city attorney during those discussions in 2012 at the at the public hearing said, just think about what's happening here and think about the reason it's happening. It's not because Woodland Park says they don't have enough water for you. It's because Netco says it's going to be very difficult to continue to serve every resident of this community right. with this burden. And that was the purpose in privatizing the housing, just to get some amount of uh, reimbursement for those services. And at that time, the city had assessed that, yeah, we've we've got enough water to, to cover them, but the city doesn't have anything to do with fire and ambulance. The thing that kind of amazes me is that even now the stories are all all kind of changing. It went from four units of student housing. Now it's going to be eight. And my understanding, it went from uh, the cost was $1.5 million to now it's $6.5 million. So the, the numbers and the story and the planning and all that kind of stuff is is constantly changing. Is, is that true? Is it going to be an eight unit student housing? I don't know. I don't believe it is. I don't think they ever, that was something that was never changed in the final site plan. Uh, what did change was the nature of the type of housing. I remember Mr. Bozeman had started and again, this is Larry Bozeman, who was the director of operations, stated... Who's not around anymore, so, right? No, he retired. I think he went to Tennessee. Um, Smart. <laughs> uh, any, at any rate... Hey, maybe he's going to hook up with uh, Jim Baker. Uh, no, that was North Carolina. But. Yeah, well, see, I was in North Carolina in the 70s, so I understand how all this prosperity televangelism stuff oh, kind of yeah, works. Yeah. I grew up in North Carolina, too, so I know very well. Uh, at any rate, he had envisioned lodging for family units, less dormitory style. The number of beds, um, heads to beds, I don't think has changed. It's just the configuration. I think now they're looking more of a dormitory style as the primary student housing uh, structure. But that probably is not as relevant as representatives from the college now accusing the community of blackmailing them into this condition or that the condition happened after, you know, after midnight when no one was there but the mayor. That's not how it works. There was a lot of cloak and dagger kind of accusations that were going on. I was amazed when I was listening to all this during the, uh, I guess the the final stand at the uh, at the city council meeting, and I respectfully, I've asked the mayor and I've asked city council members, is trying to get an inside track because that's the way I am. I'm just inquisitive. Nothing that I would have put on the air, I would never violate that. And I I understand that they were negotiating and that there was legally nobody could talk about. It. And that I think that's about the time that you and I start emailing back and forth. And I'm just like, man, why is nobody hearing about all this kind of stuff? And a lot of those those folks that were in the decision making 
positions at the time and still live here in town. The fact that an individual stated that that condition for privatization of the student housing happened after the public hearing is incorrect and it would have been illegal. And I don't even know why he had to throw it in there in the, in the paper a couple of weeks ago because the city council had already said, okay, we give up. You're threatening to, to sue us and we'll, we'll bend over on this one. And that's what they did. If you're Womack Ministries or whoever, you can do a telethon for a weekend and, and raise enough money to uh, fight an endless legal battle and the city is really doesn't have a leg to stand on. It was, it was a correct decision as far as I'm concerned. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus and say, you guys are bad and this and that. But mm-hmm. but uh, even their attorney towards the end of that that whole conversation, the vote after the, the mayor gave her kind of last stand, which, which I thought was really good. I backed that the whole way. He came back and, you know, he was talking about half truths, like, you know, veterans get benefits on property tax and so do senior citizens. Well, that's only half the truth. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I agree. I, I, and I'm not even sure why he had to throw more fuel on the fire. The decision had yeah. been made. And, yeah. I, and I thought uh, Mayor Labar's extemporaneous um, speech, if you want to call it that, was was spot on. But if you recall, no one discussed payment in lieu of taxes. Correct. So the next thing you see is the big cardboard check come out with the city manager and two of the city council members uh, for $250,000 being donated to the city by uh, Womack, either by Womack Ministries or, or Cares Bible College. I don't recall which one. I think they're one and the same. But Catherine Nakai brought up a good point uh, when she was on about three weeks ago. It's like, what about the rest of the county? Well, that's right. That money is not intended for the county or those other services. It was specifically provided to the city. You know that I've had this discussion with uh, the city manager. I said, exactly what was the money for? And it's to buy future water shares. Right. Uh, the Byzantine water laws of Colorado require the city to buy augmentation water in order to use the water that we use every day from uh, a well field here in town. I call it the Colorado water. Mafia. Yeah. Yeah. And it's based on ancient water laws. But um, at any rate, a discussion had occurred with um, whomever at the college and uh, the city staff about they've got another nearly 200 acre parcel. They're going to be coming to planning commission and the city council to do something with that parcel. I am I've not been privy to those discussions. I really don't want to be because eventually I'll have to hear it as a planning commissioner. And I don't want to queer the discussion, as they say. But I'm assuming that there was a discussion. It said, okay, if you're going to do this with this new piece of property, in addition to what you're already using, then you're going to have to think about water. You have to come to the table with water. And now this is on top of everything and housing and things that are, are being currently planned correct. for Woodland Park. You know, the initial analysis of how much water the current campus uses, what the assessment was that we have enough water in Woodland Park to cover that. Um, Jim Schultz, a previous water director, I think, did that very scientifically, as scientifically as you can with water, and said, yeah, we've got enough water to cover this this PUD. Upcoming PUD, maybe not. I don't know what's in that new PUD. I don't know if that PUD will be uh, glommed on to the, the current PUD. But the discussion occurred that, okay, you're going to make this any bigger than it is right now. You're going to have to tell us where the water is going to come from. You just said something very telling right there. And I'm I'm betting dollars to donuts that they'll try to attach or that someone would try to attach that onto the current PUD. There might not be a positive or a negative reason to do that, just simplicity. But if that new parcel includes additional uses of water, then it was right for the city to say, okay, there's no guarantee a new PUD is going to get approved, but you better start thinking about 
bringing water to the table, which is asked of if another parcel of land wanted to be annexed into the city. And I did confirm with the city that that money in that big dramatic check presentation was to pay for water shares. Kind of a pittance when you look at the big picture. Yeah, I I have no idea what the big picture is. And if $250,000 begins to put a dent into that big picture, that was a responsible thing to do. I, I guess I'm just offended with the whole, you know, drama of the presentation of the check. It really comes back to our town is bound by the national forests. It can only get so big and there can only be so many people here and, and still have the infrastructure to support every resident, whether they're attending the college, working here or living here or all three. Just so many fishes and loaves this time around. They're not unlimited. And if their plan is to to expand their campus into this new purchase, this new piece of real estate that they have now, great. And it was very prudent of the city to say, if you're thinking ahead, think about water. And then here they come with their $250,000. And is that enough? I don't know. Is it more than enough? The thing is, you got to wait for a water share to come up for sale and they don't come up for sale. So if none come up for sale, then that $250,000 is buying air, not water. It's kind of like uh, investing in a condo. You know, you're buying you're buying air instead of buying a house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Or, hey, that's a horrible analogy. But. Yeah, I was thinking along timeshares, but anyway, I I don't know. I, I've not been privy to those, those conversations and it, it wouldn't be appropriate for the city manager to share that with me, but he did confirm that money was not to pay for uh, services in the emergency responder districts. It was to pay for future water shares. I'm still curious as to why when the discussion of payment in lieu of taxes was never, every time it came up, it was basically shoved under the rug. No one wanted to talk about that except for NETCO. NETCO, I mean, it it happens all over the United States, happens all over the state of Colorado. 501c3s find other ways to compensate the community that they're going to be living in and still hasn't come up. So let me ask you this to kind of wrap this all up. Where do you see it going from here? I mean, we're, we're pretty much stuck with, uh, it is what it is at this point, right? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, unless the discussion of payment in lieu, lieu of taxes comes up. And I don't think that it's appropriate for the city to make that demand. It's the taxing districts. And I remember in 2012, and it was actually captured in the minutes, is that was the recommendation of the then city manager and the mayor saying, this is not going to go away. Netco, would you please put together a working group and come up with some alternatives? There were a couple of events that happened after that, like a pancake breakfast uh, that was supposed to, you know, $3,000 given to Netco and I think to the ambulance district as well. And that number's not exact, but it was about that amount. And like, okay, that's it. When Netco says they need at least eighty to $100,000 per year to be able to respond to this additional population. Right. Going forward, um, I do expect a new PUD uh, application to come forward. It be one that asks to be added to the current PUD or maybe a separate one. And I envision that Karis is going to say, "Hey, we gave you two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You better, you better approve this." I hope that that's not how the discussion goes, but that's that's in their pocket for sure. It's kind of mountain politics. That's uh, that's exactly how it goes. Well, you're you're probably right. It's not mountain politics. It's just politics across the United States. Yeah, I guess so. From every local to state to federal level. But then again, if I didn't say that, I wouldn't be my sweet, sarcastic self. That's true. That's true. Continue <laughs> color it the way you should. But I do think that our districts, our taxing districts, are 
are heavily impacted by any growth, the, the current campus and any new growth, and they need to figure out how to deal with ministry and the college and figure out how to go forward. It's more than just buying water rights. It's how do you provide emergency services? And if you were here during Waldo Canyon Fire or even the Hayman Fire, emergency services are critical whether you live in the county or whether you live within the city limits. Well said. Carol Harvey, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we're going to keep an eye on things and see how it goes. And uh, hopefully we can have you back. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks. All right. Coming up next, it's story time with Michelle as we continue the Myers Avenue history in Cripple Creek. So come on back. Are you tired of gambling? Or maybe gambling just isn't your thing? Then you need to come visit the historic Butte Theater, located in the heart of Cripple Creek, Colorado. Enjoy our classic melodramas, Shakespeare of the West, musicals, comedies, and our community's favorite Christmas show. The Butte is fun for the whole family, so get your tickets today at thebuttetheater.com and come join in our fun. Welcome back to the Bear Cave. I'm still Dennis Zerrell, and right now it's story time with Michelle on the Bear Cave Hotline. Hey, Michelle. It's almost the end of September already. I can't believe it. I know. It's ridiculous. Got any colors turning up there in uh, Cripple Creek area? There is. There's a little bit here and there. Um, It's definitely starting to move that direction for sure. Even over the weekend, I could tell because when I left here Friday, I was like, oh gosh, you know, it seems to be moving really slow. But coming up today, it's like, okay, now you can start seeing them. We're starting to see some of the reds come in there. So it's going to be pretty, pretty dang cool. They're here. So we're excited. Yeah, I took a drive out to Fair Play this weekend and I noticed that, uh, you know, the higher elevations there, they're really starting to turn up there. And uh, on the way back into Teller County, it's like, eh, not so much, but yeah, it's, it's happening. Won't be long now before the There'll be lots of traffic congestion going up to Cripple Creek. Oh, you're not kidding. So all I can say is, please, if you want to come up here and leave peep, that's awesome. But get off the road to take your pictures. Yes, please be safe. (laughs) Be safe. That's the big thing. Please be safe. Yeah, I always see people getting on the road, you know, trying to take pictures. And it's like, look, you you can pinch this little screen on your iPhone. You know, it'll make it go big and small. Right. Right. Maybe use that instead. But, uh, well, last week we finished part two of the Myers Avenue history. What have we got going on today? So, yeah, we've kind of touched bases on the general aspect that we had our own red light district and everything. And I'm going to talk about one of the most prominent 
houses that we had here. And that is still here as a museum. And that's called the Old Homestead House. Yeah, I got sucked into the last week when you said, uh, hey, we still have a working house here. I'm like, wait a minute, we have a house of prostitution? <laughs> well, right. technically, I guess we do. Hey, bring in taxes, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it. So the old homestead at 353 Myers, which is still standing, always enjoyed the greatest fame and the finest clientele of any gold camp brothel. From the day this posh house opened, it was the playground of mining kings and known throughout the West. The first building that housed the old homestead burned down during the fire in 1896. In the two-story brick building that replaced it, the madam generally kept from five to six boarders quote unquote, and a staff of seven, including a housekeeper, two maids, two butlers, a piano player, and a porter. Yeah, we're talking about, this is a pretty wanky place. Yeah, we're talking about a five-star hotel here, or a... Pretty much. Well, five-star accommodations. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. But it's hard to believe that that many people were working in that place, though. I mean... I mean, the rooms are really small, but I mean, what did you need rooms for? <laughs> yeah, good point. So the house actually had electric lights, running water, a television phone and intercom system, but the tiny bedrooms were heated with small coal stoves. On the ground floor, the lavishly decorated parlors and the great entertainment room were the camp's gayest parties were given. They were warmed with fireplaces. An interesting feature of the house was the hallway window on the second floor, which in fact is still there that you can go see, through which a man could observe and choose his companion for the evening. Ah. Aha! <laughs> and that is one of the unique things about this parlor home and as you know if you go in there on a tour for the museum you probably won't see this anywhere else i mean it, it is so unique i wonder if they had a european client and that's how all that uh, amsterdam stuff got started not that not that i would know of course <laughs> Near this window was Madam's two-room suite. Quarters were also provided for the housekeeper. And on the back of the lot, in a building that still stands, the house kept a few women of color. So still we're talking about any man could be serviced and, well, any rich man could be serviced. And he had any choice of women that were available. So that's pretty impressive for this home. That, I guess, party room or game room, whatever you want to call it, is pretty cool. It is. You know, 100 years ago, what we look at, it's kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. All the um, furnishings are from overseas. All the wallpaper was custom made. This was serious business. She wasn't messing around. And it was Pearl that actually built this one after it burned down in 1896 during the fires. What was it like before the fire? Was it that fancy or that high end? I think it was still high end, but I mean, I don't know if we have a lot of records on that. It was a wooden structure, so obviously it burned down. But um, when she decided to rebuild, she was serious. She's like, mm -mm, I'm not messing around. This is going to be the best of the best. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So uh, most visits to the old homestead were planned well in advance. A man would call the madam and arrange for his party for an evening or perhaps for a weekend. Often the groups would come up with, from another city, but more often the place would be taken over by one of the local mining kings. Here he entertained many out-of-town business associates. An evening at the old homestead included the finest food, liquor, and entertainment, and the company of the most beautiful and witty women of the camp, all in an elegant setting of crystal 
chandeliers in red velvet. For this, a client paid every cent the clever madam felt she could get out of them, and the rates at the homestead were steep, and only those known to its management could get in. So the approximate, what they say, is what she would charge for an evening for one girl was $250, and that's $7,000 in today's money. Wow. But you had a whole meal, you had the liquor, you could party all night long. That was a pretty fine deal. Well, for seven grand, it ought to be. Right? (laughs) And you can bring up all your buddies with you. Wow. When you compare the prices then to now, it's that's a staggering amount of money. It really is. But, you know, she was worth it. Her girls were, they were actually very attractive. They had good health records. They were um, always taken care of that way. And they were intelligent. They were taught not to be rude or obnoxious. They were polite. They were well-spoken. She was in business for a serious reason, you know? I mean, she knew what she was doing. Yeah, no kidding. So that's just a little touch on the Homestead House. And like I mentioned, you can definitely come up here to Cripple Creek. Check it out. We are getting towards the end of the season. I think they're only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday right now. But um, come on up and check it out. Yeah, I was up there on my birthday, as a matter of fact. My uh, my wife took me on a surprise little visit, and that's one of the places we stopped. And I am glad that we did. Absolutely. Well, with that being said, put that on your map of things to do, because as we still are enjoying some good weather, there's still a few things going on in Victor Cripple Creek area, right? Absolutely. This weekend is the kickoff for the Aspen Tours. We just talked briefly about how the Aspens are changing. So in celebration, we have the Aspen Tours going on. This is to benefit the Two Mile High Club again, our lovely, beautiful donkeys. So what they'll be doing is selling kind of like little goodie bags that have a self-guided tour. And again, all the money goes to the Two Mile High Club. Um, You can start right up here at the Heritage Center and get your goodie bag and your map. Go around and check out what colors are changing. We'll have some uh, vendors up here, so that'll be fun. And if you make your way over to Victor, they'll also have maps available over in Victor. This weekend is the Steampunk Festival and Soiree going on over there. Yeah. That should be hopping, hopping. Yeah, that's a fancy word. A soiree. A soiree. <laughs> but so, I mean, they're going to have the oddity show is going to be back up here. If you didn't get to see that during the gym show, um, they're going to have a parade. They're going to have a fashion show. I know one personal person that's over there selling his steampunk outfits that he sews from scratch and he will custom make one for you. Oh, awesome wow. work. Yeah, it, it's so cool. So that's going to be fun. That's going on both Saturday and Sunday. And then um, just to mention the 30th Young Frankenstein at the Butte Theater opens. You can't miss that. No, I'm looking forward to that one. They just closed their one show this weekend, actually. It just closed. So right now they're doing all the rehearsals for Young Frankenstein so they can get her get her open and running. Yeah, just in time because it's that favorite part of our year coming up now and it's a, it's a Halloween time coming around. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be talking more about that. Yes, we will. Well, as we come up, we're going to do a series on uh, on that just to kind of give our, our listeners a little bit of a teaser. Coming up in October, we're going to talk about some ghostly things that happen in Cripple Creek area. So, Absolutely. Probably a good time to, uh, while the jail's still open, to go up and visit that place too because there are some, there are some strange ongoings in that place. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, we've got lots of great stories that myself and staff can tell you, but the jail's open seven days a week still, and we have paranormal groups 
coming in, and I think there's actually one that is available to the public, but the next one will be November 12th that we'll have another public event. Uh, kind of give us an idea. What's the schedule going to be like coming into the winter months at the jail? At the, I should say, the Outlaw and Lawman's Jail Museum. I got it right. I'm so proud of myself. You did. You did. <laughs> right now, I'm, you know, I'm still hoping to stay open seven days a week. I'm fully staffed, so that really helps. But I know I'm losing a couple folks for the season. So we'll see how that goes. But I'll try to stay open seven days a week as long as possible. Sounds like a good time to me. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the jail and stuff like that, there's a, you've got a couple of special events that are happening that the public may be interested in if you're a paranormal type of person? For sure. Um, Come October 7th and October 8th, we've got Ghost Hunts USA. They are an international company. They'll be coming up to the jail and hosting um, public events. So you can just go to their website, Ghost Hunts USA, and sign up for those. Those run about 7 p.m. till 4 a.m. And you'll get to get into the jail and have your paranormal experience. 7 p.m. until 4 a.m. in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> Those wow. are rough weekends. <laughs> well, that'll be a good time to get your ghost on at the uh, museum, right? Absolutely. Um, it's always a good time. Of course, you can't guarantee any paranormal activity, but I'd say almost everybody has some sort of experience. So it's totally worth it. Come check it out. If nothing else, you just get to hang out with some cool people. <laughs> Hey, maybe I can stand in the corner with a sheet over my head or something for a, a buck or two. You never know. Yes, there you go. <laughs> But any public events, get on their websites, check them out and come on up and experience. And then later on, if you want to book an event next year, we can do that too. All right, Michelle. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to part four next week as we wrap up our history of Myers Avenue. It's going to be fun. Yes, it will be. It's always fun, right? It's hookers. What's not fun about hookers? (laughs) Right. Or, sorry, I don't want to uh, insult them. Painted ladies. Correct. (laughs) Well, until then, uh, we'll be talking to you next week. Sounds good. You guys all stay safe out there. Get off the road when we want to take pictures. Thanks, Michelle. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, that was Michelle Roselle with the ever-popular story time, which is, like I say, it's always my favorite part of the show. So up next, it's our Phil producer, Trevor Phipps, with some local happenings, followed by the director of marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. We'll be right back. Are you having a hard time seeing out of those dirty Colorado windows? Or maybe it's just time to finally clean those sidewalks, garages, and those stains on services around your home and office. Well, now there's a solution, and it's Peak Washing LLC. Veteran-owned and operated, Peak Washing LLC is your mobile window cleaning and pressure washing solution. Their services range from residential jobs to commercial projects using a safe and environmentally friendly approach. Peak Washing LLC can also clean and sanitize heavy construction equipment. There's virtually no job that Peak Washing can't handle. So call Greg at 719-651-7518 or find them on their Facebook page under Peak Washing LLC. That's Peak Washing LLC, your solution to that dirty job.
Welcome back into the Bear Cave. And once again on the Bear Cave Hotline, it's our field producer, Trevor Phipps. Trevor, no marathons this weekend in sporting events, were there? No, not so much. It's what uh, the park had to buy. And... Well, at least you weren't driving like, uh, you know, five hours back and forth all over the places. Well, you got a breather. But uh, anyway, what's happening on the local scene? Oh, not, not really a whole lot. It didn't seem like. It's been kind of slow. City council meeting last week, was there wasn't really a lot going on. There was a couple of rewards given to police officers and, and then some very basic like you know driveway easement approvals and stuff like that. So I actually didn't even monitor the meeting. I was able to take the week off of that. Yay. And then I did go to the school board meeting. Um, there wasn't, I don't know, it's kind of interesting how they the climate has definitely changed with those. How so? Well, the public comment isn't nearly, there's not as nearly as many people speaking. And then this last time, everybody on public comment session was speaking for the school board. There's only about five of them, including uh, all three of the Teller County commissioners all stood up and gave a speech. They gave pretty good talks. They kind of talked about, you know, unity, trying to ask the community to come together. And then they were trying to ask the people that recalled the school board to kind of come together and support the school board and try to work together. I guess now that the dust has kind of settled, it's uh, it's time to get on with business, right? Yeah, I think that was the general consensus of it. And then shortly after that, or the next day, I think it came out that the next motion in the lawsuit against the school board started by resident Aaron O'Connell basically failed. Uh, District Judge Scott Sells denied her motion that he should hold the school board in contempt of court because basically what it started was there was an agenda item last fall. They sued saying that the agenda item wasn't real clear and that they were trying to rubber stamp pushing through merit. And back then, I think in May, Sells actually agreed and filed an injunction against the school board saying that forcing them basically to file open meetings laws. Well, then the next move in the lawsuit, Aaron O'Connell said that there was another agenda item that wasn't clear that came out in May that was having to do with with um, sharing Merit Academy with the middle school. And they didn't state it very clearly on the agenda, but they, in the end, the judge ruled that it was kind of unclear, but what has been going on in the climate, like everybody should have had a reasonable expectation to know that Merit Academy would be coming up in the conversation in the agenda. So we actually denied their motion. And one of the things I read, it said, I guess the lawsuit is still moving forward somehow, but oh, not boy. exactly zero next step. So that was kind of one more big win for the school board. You know, it seems like a lot of wasted time to me because these are such minor issues. You know, maybe I don't know the whole story, but the school board got slapped for not making their agenda public. They've done that. And now it's just kind of one thing after another, and it's all not going anywhere. And it seems like a waste of the court's time, but uh, I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, when you give a lawyer a lot of money to do something, they've got to figure out you know, every little which way and the way the world works, I guess. I guess what my point is, is what is the final outcome of all this? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? You know, I would go and probably say that they're just trying to, they're trying to get them to stop, I guess. I mean, of course, the recall, they were trying to get rid of them, but now that they haven't got rid of them, I think they're just trying to formally use the court system to get them to follow open meeting laws and kind of behave how they're supposed to behave. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they're kind of doing that. And uh, if those lawsuits made that point clear that they should do that, it's like, you know, okay, they're complying, but man, where's it all going to end? You know? Yeah, for sure. Like we always say, is that it's the kids that count. It's the kids that matter the most and adults should just sit down and take your kid to school and be good parents. You know, that's all, that's all you got to do. But anyway, kind of leaving that whole crazy situation. 
I guess uh, Florissant has made the news yet once again with a couple of its model citizens. What do you know about that? It just came out uh, yesterday morning. I got a press release from the Teller County Sheriff's Office. Um, basically, it says on September 15th, 2022, the Teller County Narcotics Team, in coordination with the Teller County Sheriff's Office Emergency Response Team and patrol deputies, executed a search warrant near Florissant, Colorado. So basically, they arrived at, they got some sort of information. They arrived at this house, found a bunch of illegal things at the house, but the two suspects, Jerry and Emily Spinachia, I don't know if I have that pronounced right, but they were not at the home. So they were, they're still looking for the two people that I guess were residing at the house, but it says among the items seized were 1993 Ford Mustangs stolen out of Colorado Springs with the suspect's court paperwork inside it. <laughs> That's <laughs> kind of interesting there. That's, that's some real bear pile stuff right there. <laughs> and then seven ATVs with altered or removed VINs, five motorcycles with altered or removed VINs, a 22 caliber rifle, computer etching and engraving device used to create VIN plates. Oh. Vehicle titles not in suspects' names. Now, the rest of the stuff is actually more concerning to me. <laughs> Several hundred keys to homes, post office boxes and vehicles, business and personal checking books not belonging to the suspect. So they're doing more than just stealing cars. They've got keys to houses and all sorts of stuff. And then, of course, drug paraphernalia to include needles, pipes, and scales. Gee, shocking. Yeah. So it's Jerry and Emily Spinichia, S-P-I-N-N-I-C-H-I-A. They're pretty well known in Teller County, I think. Yeah, they're not strangers to the court, but uh, they're on the run right now. And if you see these people, call law enforcement immediately. Says, do not make contact. Do not talk to them. Just call law enforcement. Well, I would imagine they're probably out of Teller County in a, uh, oh, I don't know, stolen vehicle maybe? <laughs> but no, you're right. It's like if you got keys and mailbox keys and stuff like that, oh boy, you got to be concerned. And uh, I mean, obviously they ripped all this kind of stuff off, you know, uh, but it's the checkbooks. There's so much of that, that stuff going on. And I've been a victim of identity theft four or five times in the last five or six years. It's so prevalent these days. And with technology and computers and stuff like that, top that off with adding a few house keys. I hope that law enforcement gets these guys really quick. It's kind of alarming. <laughs> well, it is. Hey, folks, don't leave your checkbooks laying around inside of a car or anything like that. You know, it's a, uh, it's a little bit of a uh, preventive maintenance or prevent <laughs> preventive crime maintenance, so to speak. <laughs> well, what we were kind of talking about earlier too, is I think that, you know, I think that's part of why these new trash laws that the county's trying to implement and pass as far as limiting how many junk cars are in properties and stuff like that. Because if you're altering VINs, VIN numbers, which a VIN is a vehicle identification number, if people don't know, it's basically a, a stamp or a signature that gets put on every single vehicle and they all have their own unique number. That's how they get, you know, that number gets attached to your registration, which gets attached to insurance. So that's in your license plate. So that's how they can tell when a vehicle's stolen and when it's not, basically. If you're in the business of changing VIN numbers and selling those machines, then, uh, uh, yeah, these people need to go away for a long time. I think the other thing they collected up too was uh, some titles that uh, belonged to some of those vehicles that they didn't have. So I, you know, I don't know how you obtain titles unless you're going to somebody's house or if they're they're in the vehicle. I don't keep titles to vehicles that I own in my vehicle. I keep them in the house somewhere in a safe, yeah. secure area. So you know, just another tip. 
Moving on to uh, some things a little bit more happy, I guess, is regional sports. What's happening this week? I wrote an article this week about uh, non-football sports going on. Um, the, the volleyball team seems to have really turned their league around. I kind of heard some mutterings in the beginning of the season because they started their season with three straight losses. But since then, they've actually won five in a row. Wow. So in the three losses were non-league games. So they've won their five and three overall and two and zero when it comes to playing their league. So it looks like they've kind of come around. Nice going, ladies. Southball is still, they've won a couple games, but I think they've started off their league play 0-2. They're struggling a little bit, but they've turned their team around this year. They have a new coach and a pretty young team with a lot of new players on it. So they're kind of just grasping the concepts and stuff, so I think. Um, soccer's been looking pretty good. The boys have won some decent team matchup. They, they also have a new coach this year, and then they have a, they have a freshman that's also the football kicker. He scored four goals against Mitchell, and then the next very next day, kicked five field goals against Mitchell, <laughs> football team. Yeah, Mitchell had a bad week. And he's looking pretty impressive right now as a freshman, and then the soccer team also has a freshman goalie this year. Wow. It seems to be doing pretty well, so. Well, moving on from local and high school sports, uh, I guess you watched the Broncos game. I know we were texting back and forth a little bit, and uh, I was just kind of clutching my arms around my waist, just hugging myself, trying not to cry of what I saw on the field. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the ugliest win. And the funny part, though, was that the fans were not putting up with it. They, Russell Wilson and the coach, they were all booed at halftime when it was 6-6. And then towards the end of the game, which I had never seen in my life, the fans started verbally counting down the play clock once it got to 10 because the Broncos had two delay of game penalties and in their first two games of the season they have a total of three delay of game penalties already the entire season last year they only had four so the fans I guess that was their way to kind of be smart asses and then try to help their team at the same way they were shouting out so they knew when the play clock was getting ready to expire because 70,000 people were screaming that's about the time the texts between you and I were flying back and forth (laughs) and uh, I even started counting down like come on don't don't do this well the coach took responsibility he was saying that it was his fault that he wasn't getting the plays into the quarterback in a timely fashion and they just look out of sync they just don't look like they're they're getting it together he's not making decisions on whether they want to go for it how are you coaching the nfl (laughs) he's definitely making a lot of rookie mistakes and that shouldn't happen because he's you know he's been a coordinator offensive coordinator for a while it's not like he's a brand new coach coming in yeah, he had a very successful offensive program with Aaron Rodgers. You know, he's supposed to be this offensive guru and he can't even get a punt receiver out on the field. Oh, boy. <laughs> he's always been a play caller because he's offensive coordinator. Well, sometimes it's kind of typical when somebody, an offensive kind of guy like him, comes head coach he makes the decision to be the play caller still and call his own plays. Well, as a rookie coach, sometimes it can be difficult being the offensive play caller and then still being the one that has to make those, you know, decisions when it matters, like when to take timeouts and, you know, when to keep your offense out, when to put your putters out, and that sort of thing. So maybe he's just kind of overwhelmed. That's why I think he should have a piece of tape on his clipboard or wherever he's looking at that says $250 million on it. And let Russell Wilson do what Russell Wilson does, and that is score touchdowns. But uh, right now they just look kind of out of sort, out of sync. Hopefully they can turn it around, but uh, yeah. 
It's anybody's guess. It's a brand new team this year. I guess we'll see what happens uh, when we talk about it next weekend. The Niners are hot right now because they got Garoppolo back under center again. So uh, all I can say is good luck, donkeys. Hopefully you can pull one out. But yeah, but I mean, they obliterated the Seahawks. They're division kings. You compare how they beat the Seahawks compared to how Broncos played the Seahawks. Well, if the stars line up and we get really lucky, the Broncos will pull out a win against San Francisco. But uh, if they don't, I'm sure that'll give us plenty of stuff to talk about next week. Yeah, for sure. All right, Trevor, until next week, uh, you have a good one, and uh, I'll talk to you really soon. All right, sounds good. You have a good day. See you, Trevor. That was our Phil producer, Trevor Phipps. But moving along, next on the Bear Cave Hotline is the Director of Marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. Kay, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. A little sad, though, because now the season's over, and I think the Grand Junction Rockies won the uh, pennant. Yep, they did. They ended up taking it, so I'm okay with them winning, I guess. If it had to be anyone, I'm glad it was them. <laughs> yeah, Colorado team anyway. But but you know what? Uh, last time we were talking was at... Uh, uh, the last one of the last home games and uh, I gotta tell you for me the whole season is a win-win and a lot of that is credited to what you guys did in the front office and uh, kind of the moves that you made in the second half of the season kind of wrap up the whole season for me yeah I mean all around it was my first season here and everyone that returned just talked about how much change there was on the field I mean you we saw the overhaul halfway through the season and how well that benefited us so that was a fun exciting change and really changed the atmosphere of the baseball team itself here, which was fun. And then internally and up in the stands, we did a slew of promos, added a bunch of stuff, changed a lot of things. And, and that's only going to increase and change going into next season, which I'm pretty excited for. Yeah, I agree. And uh, because of the online games that were there, I was able to catch, I bet I probably caught close to 30 games, if not more. And uh, coming from a television background, I noticed that the subtle changes you guys were making during the season were really good because uh, it started off with the, the normal online streaming kind of service and then you notice that there's a bug that comes up and then that bug got uh, added on to with uh, balls and strikes and besides the score and all these kinds of little changes and I just want listeners to know that these things take time and it's really a lot of work that you guys put into it and I think it was a, a real step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean our broadcast is probably one of my favorite aspects that we have here at the ballpark. Tyler Peterson is phenomenal in the broadcast and he just had all these plans and ideas that he wanted and then we sat down with our graphics team and our technical team and just like said hey we want these and as we got them we implemented them and it only grew and became phenomenal and that vibes tv is it's so fun <laughs> yeah it is and honestly it it really does make a difference because you start figuring things out as the season goes along you start adding all these elements to it and a lot of time it gets overlooked but i just want to make mention of that to our listeners if they didn't catch that there's a tremendous amount of work and thought and forethought that went into this and uh, i just want to tell you that i appreciate it well i'm glad to hear that i'm glad that you guys enjoy it and we definitely want to make it vibes baseball like you don't have to be here we have followers all across the country and the world even and we want to make sure that they they know what's going on at every aspect of it yeah so i, I gotta think uh, kind of going back the mid-season when things started to turn around i would love to have been a fly on the wall just to listen to those meetings happening but uh it was decided at some point that we've got to do something to start winning games that's part of the, providing that family fun entertainment if you're seeing a team get beat by 20 or you're gonna have a good time regardless but like it only enhances the experience to have that exciting walk-off run in the ninth or a home run derby at the end of it like it those are exciting and that's what we wanted to provide and so we wanted to take control and button up so uh, the front office took control of the roster and made a lot of changes brought a lot of people in and that's something we're going to continue going forward because it 
clearly worked really well for us, and we've got signing deadlines coming up for next season already. I've got to think that uh, Monclova was probably down with that, too, because nobody wants to have a, a team that's out there that's not winning games, right? Correct, yeah. We still work with them, and we make decisions with them and are on board with them for that. We still have that partnership with them. We just modified it to benefit everybody. I've got to think that they were happy with the changes. They were. They actually uh, they fly up several times throughout the season, so they got to enjoy some, some good wins as well. Well, what are we looking like for next season? I'm hoping that the uh, the same philosophy and this momentum keeps going. I mean, it is. It's We're already well into planning. I'm pretty much finalized with our promos and theme nights for next year. Um, so we'll do some teasers and releases throughout the next few months leading up to the season. Um, and once we get the schedule, I'll nail them down to dates. And there's going to be a lot of exciting things happening here. Uh, for me, really, I'm excited to have these multiple months to kind of plan and make these theme nights and events just a huge extravaganza here at the ballpark. Now that I kind of have time, it'll it'll be a lot bigger and better than last year. Now, speaking of signings and things like that, I know we're going to be losing a couple of players because I guess uh, I guess in minor league you kind of term out at some point, right? Yeah, so they're only allowed to do three years. So uh, one one that's going to really hurt the the vibes in the community is Micah Known. He he's hit his time, uh, so unfortunately wouldn't be able to come back next year. What's uh, what are his plans going to be? I'm not sure. He went back home. He's from over the Delaware, Maryland area, so he he went back there and he's starting things. I know Seth Davis is also at his time limit, so he's diving into what he wants to do next in his his career path. It's hard to lose those kinds of guys because they still have a passion for baseball down at the minor league level, and they're really good players. And uh, I just hope that they can uh, you know find a spot somewhere. I know, yeah, they definitely make an impact on the team and in the community, and so it's gonna it'll be sad losing them. Yeah, for sure. Well, who are some of the players that we may be seeing coming back next year? Um, I'm not too sure entirely. Um, don't want to give anything away, but I know that some of your favorites will definitely be coming back next year. Hey, you can't blame me for trying. <laughs> okay, well, now that the season's kind of ended, that doesn't end the job for you, and you've got some plans for off-season at UC Health Park, too, right? Oh, yeah. We've got, actually, we do Christmas parties, holiday parties throughout our banquet hall. We do stadium rentals and all of that, so we actually are very well booked. I don't think many of us, um, we take a few vacations, but we're still here a crazy amount of time just to put on things for the community, and there'll be some exciting things happening throughout the off-season, um, private events, public events, all that fun stuff. Anything you can let us in on, like uh, around Christmas time? Are there going to be some events that the public can attend? I'm trying to cook up something for some Christmas stuff, so you'll have to stay tuned to see what I decide on. Hey, maybe we can have a spook alley in the visitor's locker room. Yeah, definitely. I think some chores around the ballpark would be really fun to get going up here again. I agree. Well, all I can say is for most of the Bear Cave, we really appreciate that relationship that we had this year with you. You treated us so well, and uh, hopefully we can bring some fans to the ballpark next year. I'm, I'm already looking forward to it. I'm excited. Me too. I'm kind of a baseball guy, so I guess I'll maybe I'll have to watch reruns or something. I don't know. Yeah, with the Vibes TV, we've got gotcha. you. <laughs> That's right. All right, Kay, well, we appreciate you being with us all season long and giving us the updates. We certainly support the Vibe. Hopefully, we can continue that into next season, but in the meantime, if something comes up, please give us a call because uh, we sure like working with you guys. Yeah, we love working with you guys, and I'll keep you updated on all the fun happenings until we see you here next season. All right, Kay, sounds good. Thanks again for coming on. We appreciate it. Of course. You have a good one. That was the director of marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. I got to tell you, uh, what a great season it was. And uh, man, it's over way too soon. Anyway, up next, it's news of the weird and find out who gets tossed on the bear pile this week. So don't go away.
Do you have an upcoming special event and don't know what to do? In the Shadow Designs can create one-of-a-kind pieces for you. Located in the heart of Woodland Park, Colorado, In the Shadow Designs specializes in beautiful centerpieces, wreaths, and one-of-a-kind creations for your home or business. Whether it's a baby shower, celebration of life, anniversary, or corporate event, let In the Shadow Designs meet your needs. So contact In the Shadow Designs today on their Facebook page or give them a call at 818-400-1456. Let In the Shadow Designs do the work for you so you don't have to. Cave, and I'm still Dennis Zerl, and now it is time for News of the Weird. The headline this week reads, Unclear of the Concept. Elizabeth Leon, 18, was hired to babysit a four-year-old in Adventura, Florida. Man, there seems like a lot of weird stories coming out of Florida lately. Have you noticed that? Well, she was supposed to babysit from 1.45 p.m. until midnight. When the child's mother texted Leon at 11.14 to say she was headed home, Leon's reply text said that she was heading out because her mom paid for an Uber to take her back home and it had arrived ahead of time. That's what the arrest report said. Hmm, getting better. Leon told the mother that she was babysitting for that she had locked the door and requested her payment of $168. Not bad wages. Well, being the smart mother that she is, she checked her ring doorbell recording and saw that Leon had actually left at 9.45. Uh-oh. That means that she left that child alone for more than two hours, and this is a four-year-old child. Well, the end result? On August 22nd, Leon was charged with child neglect and transferred to, you guessed it, jail, where she's unlikely to get any kind of early release, I'm guessing. Nice going there, Leon. All I can say is that it's people like me that toss people like you on the bear pile. Each week, we nominate the top events and or people who should be tossed on the bear pile and eaten by the bears. The person, place, and or thing to be tossed on the bear pile to be eaten by the bears this week is... Good old Eric Metaxas for comparing Christian conservatives in the U.S. to victims of Nazi Germany. Remember that guy from last week? Yeah. This guy is still in need of a serious history lesson. Good Lord. The nominations this week are, number one, the city of Denver and the Basic Income Project for ignoring homeless men and spending $2 million on a woke project on people who, I don't know, don't know which bathroom to use. Number two, CBS News 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley for playing T-ball with Sniffy Joe. Maybe one day he'll ask a follow-up question? Nah, I doubt it. Probably wouldn't make Geppetto the Puppet Master very happy anyway. And number three, it was kind of a toss-up between our uh, friends from Florissant or Elizabeth Leon. Yeah, I think it's Elizabeth Leon for being a horrible, lying babysitter. Yeah, that's it. You just suck. 
Oh, by the way, Uber doesn't like you either. Well, once again, that's it for me this week. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you had a semi-good time listening this week. I would like to thank our sponsors, Abode Real Estate, the Historic Butte Theater, In the Shadow Designs, and Peak Washing, LLC. Thanks to our guest, Carol Harvey, for coming into the Bear Cave this week, and also Director of Marketing for the Rocky Mountain Vibes, Kay Goodell. We're going to miss you until next season, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you throughout the winter. As always, thanks to Michelle Roselle for bringing us story time again this week. Always my favorite part of the show. And last but not least, thanks to our field producer, Trevor Phipps. If you have an event coming up or you want to be a sponsor of this show, hit us up on our Facebook page, This Week in the Bear Cave, or our Instagram page by the same name. You can access the show on Spotify, Podbean, Anchor by Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Your hate mail can be sent to the same address as always, thisweekinthebearcave at gmail.com. Be gentle with us. We get tons of hate mail. It makes us sad. All right, it doesn't. Our guest next week is going to be 60 Minutes Hack Scott Pelly. Yeah! We're hoping he can answer some follow-up questions, but then again, that may be a little too much for him, seeing as how he doesn't know what a follow-up question is. But he does know what T-ball is, though. Vice President Obama Harris was supposed to come into the show, but she couldn't find an interpreter who actually knows what she's talking about. Well, that makes about 200 million of us, I guess. Talk to you again next week, everyone. Be well, and thanks for listening. Sweet dreams, Sam and Max. This Week in the Bear Cave is produced by Animus Productions, all rights reserved in perpetuity. Oh,